Well, a couple of months ago after one of our church services, my wife was in the back standing behind a sign-up table with our nine-year-old son, and she was signing up ladies for like a Rio Women Bible study or something like that. And, and one of you who hadn't yet made the connection between she and I walked up and said, okay, you must be Tom's wife because that is his son. And, uh, and we had a great laugh about that at lunch, but man, is that ever true? I mean, I cannot deny this kid, and he cannot deny me. I've apologized several times, and I, I think he's okay with it. So far, but I mean, he looks just like me, and as he matures, and hang on to that idea, he looks more like me, not less. To look at us is to know that we're father and son. And I tell you that this morning because as we come back now to our study of the life of Jesus, as John presents it to us in his gospel, we come once again to Christ and we find him again in Jerusalem. We find him again in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. That actually matters. We find him teaching in the temple courts, as he so often does, and disputing not with the whole of the Jewish people, but with the religious elite, with their religious leaders, in this case, with the Pharisees. And there's a sense in which what he's going to say to them is, guys, if you don't recognize me, let me tell you why. It's because contrary to what you might think, you don't know the Father. Because if you knew the Father, you would immediately recognize me as His Son. I mean, because here's the deal. To look at us is to know automatically that we're Father and Son. And then He takes that idea and He turns it on them, but not just them, on me on you. And he says, I want to tell you something about you. That principle, that's true of me. That's true of you as well. In other words, every single one of us looks like our father and not just biologically. That's obvious. But it should also be obvious that we look like our spiritual father. Every single one of us looks like our father. The question then that we're dealing with today as we move through this passage of scripture is, well, then do I look like the father? Do I look like Father God? We pick up our study again this morning in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, where Jesus right out of the gate says something that's true about him and therefore then also about his father because they're like identical twins, but then also it should be true and in fact is true of all those who actually belong to the Father through faith in the Son, and it should be true, as we'll talk about, in ever-increasing measure, standing in the temple courts in Jerusalem, teaching and disputing with the Pharisees during the Feast of Tabernacles, at which every single night the feast was celebrated by the lighting of four huge, great lamps and the lighting of many torches that men would take and then dance all throughout the night in the temple courts. This was a day and age with no electricity, no street lights, or anything to that effect. So this would light up the whole city. Jesus grabs hold of that biblical image of light. He applies it to himself. And in John 8, verse 12, says this. He says, I am the light of the world. And let me tell you what happens when you hear that statement. Even if you don't know anything about Jesus, you know automatically that whatever it is that he means by that, it's pretty cool. I mean, that is an awesome statement. At the very least, you go, Jesus knows how to turn a phrase. And he does, but what does it mean? Because it's cooler even than you think. And whatever it means, it's what Jesus is. And consequently, what his father is. And consequently, what you and I are to be in ever-increasing measure if indeed we belong to the same Father. So then, biblically speaking, what's light? 
First of all, light is the creative gift of God. You see that on page one of the Bible. You open it up, and how does it start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what do the heavens and earth look like? Because we've talked about this in the past. They're dark. They're dead. They're formless. It speaks of chaos and disorder. They're void, meaning they are utterly empty. And what is the first creative act of God? And he creates this by his word. He says, let there be what? Light. And there was light. Light is the creative gift of God, and not just in the original creation. Not just in the physical creation of the heavens and the earth, but in the spiritual creation in me and in you, in which he makes us new creatures. I mean, the New Testament, Paul comes along, and he speaks of our salvation experience in the language of creation, in fact, in the language of light. He says that God has shown the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ into our hearts, which were otherwise dark and dead, and in chaos, and empty. It's the gospel. He shines that light into us, but what else? He sends us into the world that He might shine that light out through us as well, that we might go into a world that is otherwise dark and bring to it the light of Christ, that is otherwise dead and bring the message of a resurrection life, that is otherwise disordered and bring a wisdom that orders, that's otherwise empty, It does not fill, it does not satisfy, and bring that which does. So light is the creative gift of God. Darkness is the anti-creative work of the enemy, and the enemy is a part of this conversation, as you'll see as we get into it further. So light is the creative gift of God. Secondly, light is given specifically to rule over the darkness. God gives the sun to rule over the day, the moon to rule over the night, which practically speaking means that to walk in the light, which is where Jesus goes next, as we'll see in a second, is to walk in safety. It's to be free of the perils that lie in wait for you in the darkness and that in the darkness you're subject to. You don't otherwise see. Light is given to rule over darkness. Thirdly, light is associated with God's presence. And just walk through the Old Testament. You find, for example, the people of Israel who head out into the wilderness are led at night by a pillar of fire. What is that? It's a pillar of light that leads them through the darkness. They don't walk in darkness. That's the idea. You think of the Shekinah glory of the Lord, that luminous cloud that envelops Mount Sinai, that inhabits the temple. Light is associated with the presence of God. Darkness, with the absence of His presence, or really, actually, more accurately, with His presence in judgment. It's a big difference. Light in the Bible represents that which is pure, darkness that which is impure. Light, that which is true, darkness that which is untrue. Light, wisdom and understanding. Darkness, foolishness and ignorance. Light represents the favor of God. Darkness is disfavor. Light brings joy, darkness, sorrow. Light also reveals, that is to say, light brings sight. Darkness brings blindness. And then, of course, light in the Bible is necessary for life. It is the prerequisite of life. Darkness is the harbinger of death. And so then in saying, I am the light of the world, Jesus is saying, I hope you guys hear all of that because that's what I am. That consequently then also is what my father is because to look at us is to know that we're father and son. And by the way, that's what you and I who belong to the father through faith in the son are to be in ever increasing ever-growing measure. In fact, Jesus makes that clear with the next statement. 
Right after he says, I'm the light of the world, he then immediately says, whoever follows me. You hear that? Whoever follows me will, what? Well, not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Why? Because they look like their father, and he is light. And they look like him in ever-increasing measure, in ever-maturing fashion. And I think that's an important point, you know, because you hear all those emblems of light and you start comparing your life to it. And if you're like me, you're going, eh, eh, you know, or not a lot of that here, not a lot, you know, and you start going, good grief. And is there any light in me at all? And I, I guess that really is the question. Is there any light in you at all? Are the emblems of light at all in you? If not, then we need to go back to square one. But if so, then the follow-up is, are you growing in it? Are you maturing in it? You know, being born spiritually is kind of like being born physically. You're born a baby. But here's what I know about babies. If they receive the nourishment that they're given, if they exercise their little bodies, if they're normal, if they're healthy, those babies grow up. And as you look into the face of those babies, there may be a resemblance to the father in the face of those babies. But here's the deal. As they grow up and mature, as their features become more distinct, they look more and more and more and more like their father's not less and less. And here's what else I know. If you're five years old or 10 years old or 20 years old or 30 years old and you're still a baby, there's something wrong. And that's true spiritually as well. Guys, that's an aberration. That's abnormal. It's not right. And it's very frustrating to the parents, isn't it? How do you think the father feels? A couple of weeks ago, we did our Rio Men retreat, and we talked about biblical manhood. And one of the mantras that we unfurled was from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, where Paul comes to us and he says, listen, when I was a child, do you hear that language? When I was immature, when I was a child, my speech reflected it. I spoke like a child. My thinking reflected it. I thought like a child. My reasoning reflected it. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, you know, when I grew up, I bought a four-wheel drive. I started drinking beer and entering hot dog eating contests. No. No, and I talked about the fact that at least in theory, you can drive a Prius and be a real man. It is theoretically possible. I'm just kidding. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, put away my childish ways. We've got some 5, 10, 15, 20, 25-year-old spiritual babies in this congregation, and that is not right. It's not right. So Jesus comes to us and he says, look, I am light. Therefore, then also my father, who I look identically like, is light. And those who authentically belong to the father through faith in me, well, they are light as well in ever-increasing, ever-maturing fashion. But here's the problem. The Pharisees that he's disputing with in the temple courts 
are just not buying Jesus as son of God, savior of the world, and for that matter, light of the world. I mean, I'm sure they thought the phrase was cool and the timing with the whole lamp thing was pretty remarkable. I mean, obviously he's a gifted teacher, but light of the world, not sure what that means. Maybe they're thinking, but maybe they do know what it means. And in any event, they're not buying it. And not only is that true for those guys, but it's true even for some segment of this crowd, which allegedly professed at least to believe in Jesus, but very obviously did not. And so he speaks to that. And listen to what he says. Verse 31, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who at least allegedly believed in him, he says, here, okay, you believe in me? Let me give you a test. He says, if, and this is the test, you abide in my word. Well, then what's true of you then? Well, then you are, in fact, my disciples. See, but the corollary to that is true. If you don't abide in my word, then you're not my disciple. And you don't belong to the Father. And there's no light in your life. And I think maybe a clarifying statement here would be helpful as well. You know, Jesus is not saying that you become his disciple by abiding in his word. You know, one day you go, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, and I'm just going to read my Bible until I am. You become his disciple when God comes and sovereignly shines the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ into your heart, which is otherwise dark, dead, in chaos, and empty, and gives you the very faith by which you then embrace Jesus Christ. But what Jesus is saying is, if that's happened, let me tell you what happens next. You, you want to know this, Jesus. You, you're like interested in him. You're curious about him. You, you develop a passion to, to, to you know, get into his word. You love Christ. What does Jesus say about those who love him? He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. He's saying that's the fruit of true love. If you're disciples, you abide in my word. That's the fruit of truly belonging to Jesus. And what is the word of God called in the Psalms? Very famous verse, Psalm 119, verse 105. The psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Father is light. Jesus is light. Those who belong to the Father through faith in Jesus abide in His word, which is light. And as the light of his word begins to show up in their life, they begin to light up in their families, in their schools, in their offices, in this community, and so forth. And so Jesus said to the Jews in that crowd on that day, and to those of us here today who at least allegedly believed in him, he said, okay, well, all right, let's clear this up. He says, if you abide in my word, well, then you are my disciples. And you will shine forth with my light. And let me tell you what else will be true of you, he then says, and it's beautiful. He says, and you will know the truth, the truth about the Father who is altogether holy, the truth about yourself, and the reality that you're not. The Father does not welcome into his house those who are not holy. He cannot stand iniquity, the Scriptures teach. And so then you'll know the truth also about the Son whom John has already taught us, is God incarnate. The Lord in the flesh come into the world 
as what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one that the whole of the Old Testament points to. He is the sacrifice that all of the other sacrifices gesture towards and teach us to look for. He is the one who comes in and lives the spotless life we have not lived and sheds his spotless blood that though we bear many spots, we may be made what we're not naturally, which is holy, and welcomed into the Father's house. Jesus says, look, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples. And let me tell you, you're going to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The obvious question then being, free from what? And that's exactly what these guys ask him next. And in asking him, they introduce this whole issue of their spiritual paternity, of who, in fact, is their father. And it's a very unmasking conversation. In verse 32, they answer Jesus, we are the offspring of Abraham. And what they're saying is, so spiritually speaking, you know, we're the chosen people of God. And then so spiritually speaking, they're saying, you know, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, they're not claiming they've never been slaves of anyone. They can't do that. Just think through their history for a minute up to this point in history. Slaves of the Egyptians... Slaves of the Assyrians, slaves of the Babylonians, slaves of the Greeks, slaves of the Syrians, slaves of Rome while they're making this statement. So they're not claiming they've never physically been slaves to any people. They're saying, look, by reason of genetics, we are free, aren't we? What's the problem? They say to Jesus, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you can say you will be free? And listen to the answer. Jesus answered them and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's emphatic. Everyone who commits sin. And how many people is that? It's everyone. Jew and Gentile, everyone is a what? Is a slave to sin And the slave, he's saying to them, which is these guys, and who else? Everyone. And the slave does not remain in the house. Whose house? The house of the father. And how long does the slave to sin not remain in the house of the father? Forever. But then Jesus says, but the son, you know, the one who actually looks like the father, the one that you guys really should be recognizing, I can't believe that you don't see it because to look at us is to know immediately that we're father and son. But the son, he says, remains in the father's house is the idea how long? Forever. And so then, if the son sets you free from your sin, as you come to him in faith, and are covered, if you will, by the blood of the Lamb of God who alone takes away sin, then what happens? Well, you will be free indeed. Free indeed to do what? To live in the house of the Father forever. But they're still not getting it. And we see that again in verse 39. It says, then they answer Jesus, and here we go again, Abraham is our father. And now watch what he does with this. Because basically he says, no, he is not your father. And here's how I know that he's not your father. You don't look at all like him. The spiritual principle being you look like your father And Jesus is going to say, you don't look like Abraham. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, what would happen? You would be doing the works Abraham did. But as it is right now, you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. 
but it is the work of somebody else. And so very ominously, he says, well, no, you're doing the works of your father. And notice what they say to him. They say, we were not born of sexual immorality. So see, now it's just like politics. It's getting nasty. I have no argument, so now I'm just going to insult you. I don't have a plan. I'm just going to throw mud. It's what they're doing. They're taking a shot at Jesus. Listen, he is born of the Virgin Mary. Or sexual immorality. Which is it? You see? They're calling him, forgive me, a bastard. We were not born bastards like you, they're saying. Well, we were not born of sexual immorality, and now notice where they go. We have one Father, even God, to which Jesus will now say, you know, not really, guys. You do have a Father, but it isn't God. And here's how I know you don't look at all like Him, but you do kind of look like someone else. Verse 42, if God were your father, what would happen? What would be true? You would love me. And again, what does Jesus say elsewhere about how love manifests itself? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's the fruit of love. It's not the cause of it. It's the result of it. If God were your father, you would love me. Here's why. For I came from God. You should recognize that. And am here. And I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And then he asks them a question, which he himself then answers. He says, why do you not understand what I say? And then he answers the question. He says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. See, my word is light. And what it's revealing in you is not attractive. And you don't like it. So now you're just getting ugly with me. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Oh, good grief. And your will is to do your father's desires which is to kill the Lord. You know, ironically, the religious elite of Jesus' day, the one who do the sacrifices, do in fact sacrifice the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All those who come to Him and believe in Him the one to whom all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament point, ironically, they do sacrifice him as God ordained they would. And they do it in darkness, in blindness, in unbelief. Jesus closes with this really famous statement in verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Your father Abraham looked forward to my day knew it was coming, and believed and rejoiced. Your father Abraham, who one day walked up a hill in the land of Moriah, which is where Jerusalem was built, and he walked with his own son to sacrifice his own son, a father who sacrifices his son. And he walks up the hill as the son carries the wood of sacrifice, Curious, interesting. And the son asks him a question, and what is it? My father, the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb? 
Oh, God himself will provide a lamb, my son. Abraham, who took his son up the hill, the son carrying the wood. The son who then willingly laid himself down on that wood, believing as did Abraham that, well, I guess God's going to raise this boy from the dead after I kill him. Because all kinds of promises have been made to me through this boy, and they haven't yet any of them been fulfilled. Abraham, who raised the knife and was called off at the last second by the father, and who then offered a lamb, no, a ram in the place of his son. There's an open question from the days of Abraham that only the Lord answers. The Lamb of God that God would provide for Himself appears in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus here says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He knew that's coming. And he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, Are you, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? <laughs> And Jesus reaches all the way back to the burning bush in Moses where God reveals His memorial name to all generations to Moses. And that memorial name is I Am. He lays hold of it. He takes it unto Himself and says, let's just cut through it. I'm going to tell you who I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I Am. I am the invisible God made visible. I'm the incomprehensible God come to you in as comprehensible a form as I can come, a man to men. I'm the I can't see him, smell him, hear him, taste him, touch him God, so I'm the insensible God to the five senses of your physical being, but sensible to your heart, who has come to you in a way that is sensible to the fullness of your being. But instead of recognizing him when he appeared and worshiping and serving him, We read what their heart is. It's the heart of their actual father. John says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So the bottom line today is that you look like your father. You really, and not just biologically, but spiritually, and not the father you think you have or or claim to have or assume you have. The father you actually have. And the question is, do you look like the Father? You know, I mean, as you play through the images, is there a resemblance there in you? And maybe it's a striking resemblance, or maybe it's the resemblance of a little boy whose face you study and go, you know, I think he has his father's ears, pretty much, because they go like this. In either case, it's a resemblance that needs to grow. The kingdom cannot afford five-year-old babies, 10-year-old babies, 15-year-old babies. God's glory is too great. The urgency is too strong. And it's time to grow and to grow up. And if not, then what's the call? It's come to Christ. God has sent the sacrifice by which you are freed from your sins and brought into the family of God, made what you're not holy, what God requires holy, and thus can come boldly into His presence and remain in His house. How long? It's a great word. 
forever. So if not, then come to him this morning and confess your sin and need for him. Receive the forgiveness and the cleansing that is Jesus, where the eternal life that is his gift to you purchased at the expense of his life. And then join the rest of us in abiding in his word. Know the word, live the word, that you might display the light of the word to your family, to the people that you work with, in your schools, in this community, and to the world for the glory of Christ. You look like your father. The only question being, do you look like the father? And if so, okay, how much?